designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode 3. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, This week, I want to talk a little bit about what I've been reading and how a couple different things are intersecting for me. Uh, I typically tend to read a couple books at the same time. So I just finished reading uh, White Fragility, and I've been reading simultaneously The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And I got to say, The Color of Law has been bringing up a lot of things for me. One of the stories that it's brought up for me is the story of my mom telling me how proud my grandfather was of me. So I was fortunate enough to have uh, all four of my grandparents alive well into my mid-20s. My maternal grandfather was a very was funny man. A man um, he didn't words, go to college and he wasn't spoke, formally educated. And so a joy. he didn't have many of the opportunities that I get to experience with the credentials that I have. And when I think about it, he was about my age now when civil rights happened in the 60s. So he went through all his formative years being pigeonholed and having different expectations for his life and what he could do. And so he ended up being a janitor for many years and decades and decades um, at a company in Virginia. And he became very endeared to his boss, so much so that in my grandfather's later years, as he started getting older and more tired, uh, he was allowed to just take naps at work, (laughs) even to the point when me, my mom, or my grandma would call his job back in the days before cell phone, when you actually had to call someone's work phone to get a hold of them. Um, the receptionist would just tell us he couldn't come to the phone because he was taking a nap and we needed to call back in 30 minutes. So it was just 
my grandfather was very charming and hilarious and um, he just had a very special place in the heart of his boss. And so anyway, so come to find out that in middle school, one of my bandmates was actually the grandson of my grandfather's boss. And so... You know, it it was interesting to be like, okay, well, my grandfather works for your grandfather. All right, it is what it is. Fast forward a couple years, turns out that we both end up going to UVA. And so my mom tells a story that there was one summer picnic that she went to with my grandfather uh, at his job. And at that picnic, he found out that I was going to the same college that his boss's grandson was going to. And my mom said the pride that my grandfather showed and the smile that he had when he realized that his granddaughter was going to the same school as his boss's grandson is something she said she'll never forget. Uh, And telling that story just, it always makes me feel really proud to know that I was able to gift my grandfather that in some way. All of that. So the reason why The Color of Law brought that up for me is just reading about all of the different housing discrimination that happened in this country by the federal government was has been both enlightening and infuriating. And it's one of those things where part of me is like, yes, water is what the federal government was discriminating against Black people. That's what they did. Uh, that's what they do. The way that he lays out the arguments in this book, it's really phenomenal. And so I want to just keep talking through and processing some of them on the show. So that brings us to the quote of the week. If you're going to clean the house, you have to see the dirt. Louise Hay. Knowing that the federal government discriminates against or discriminated against African Americans and actually getting all of the degrees of separation and the context um, is what this book brought home for me particularly with the story of Levittown. In architecture school, we study Levittown. Mass production, post-war housing, suburbia, massive construction, the American dream, you know, the birth of suburbia for the most part. And so here's what I read in The Color of Law. So I'm on pages 70 and 71. Levittown was a massive undertaking, a development of 17,500 homes. It was a visionary solution to the housing problems of returning war veterans. Mouse produced two-bedroom houses with 750 square feet sold for about $8,000 each. No down payments required. William Levitt constructed the project on speculation, which meant that the project had to be financed completely by the FHA. That's my insert. All right, so back to the book. So... For Levittown and scores of such developments across the nation, the plans reviewed by the FHA included the approved construction materials, the design specifications, the proposed sale price, the neighborhood zoning restrictions, for example, a prohibition of industry or commercial development, and a commitment not to sell to African Americans. Are you kidding me? When I read that, that blew my mind. Like, all these years... I had never once associated Levittown with discrimination because I don't know. I just didn't. It wasn't something that was brought up in architecture school. And so the fact that my grandparents would not have been able to buy a house in Levittown if they wanted to is something that blew my mind. And bear with me, y'all. I know some of y'all might be rolling your eyes and being like, well, duh, Nikita. Of course they wouldn't have been able to because segregation and everyone knows that. Okay, I get that. But 
For some reason, that hit differently. It's the context and specificity makes a difference. Same way many people understand and know that lots of people right now are dying from COVID. That's different or it hits differently when you say my mother died from COVID versus people are dying from COVID. So just the specificity of it. So anyways, I had to go back and double check that I was not going crazy. I was like, let me go and pull my architecture book because I still have my textbooks. Um, so I went back and pulled my, um, at UVA, we, and back when I went there, we used A History of Architecture, second edition by Spiro Kostoff. So I was like, let me just pull that and see what was what was in there. Let me just go back and read that passage about Levittown. This is what was in the architecture book. This is all I said about it. But more than anything else, a decision in 1934 by the Federal Housing Administration to support low-cost insured loans for single-family houses accounts for post-war suburbia. In concert with the generous provisions for veterans, mortgaging the entire value of the house with no down payment, the policy removed risk for the buyer and the builder alike. Enterprising merchant builders like Levitt & Sons, Eichler and Henry Kaiser started producing standardized or rather semi-prefabricated houses that were near-perfect replicas of traditional site-built houses. So y'all, the, the book goes on to talk about the process and how the buildings were built. It says absolutely nothing about discrimination, who could live there, po- federal housing policy, and how any of that shaped it. So, y'all. When I tell you that I was shook, I was shook. Additionally, one of my friends is reading the book, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And she also came across a quote about Levitt Town and uh, William Levitt. Here's a passage from that book where it says, The company's president, William Levitt, defended his racist policies by proclaiming his innocence and serving the needs of his customers. That is their white customer's attitude, not ours. He went on to emphasize that the commercial nature of the business precluded their ability to promote racial integration. He then goes on to say, as a company, our position is simply this. We can solve a housing problem or we can try and solve a racial problem, but we cannot combine the two. So I kept reading The Color of Law, getting more frustrated and just irritated. And so the book can goes on to lay out more of the issues with the Federal Housing Administration's policies. But what I hadn't connected was the ramifications of that. So not just the fact that, okay, Black people couldn't live, couldn't live in all-white developments like Levittown, but also the fact that the FHA was not insuring mortgages for Black people they had to buy on what was known as contract sales. So they and these sales usually provided home ownership would transfer to the purchasers after 15 or 20 years, but if even one payment was late, then the speculator could then evict whoever the would-be homeowner and the homeowner would have no equity in the house. So even if you are on time for 13 and a half years, you're late once, you get evicted, and none of your money gets, uh, and you have no equity in the property you've been living in. So black families were having to go and pay huge down payments with he- with uh, with worse interest rates, so higher monthly payments. And so here's what that resulted in. So I'm back in uh, Color of Law, page 97. Because black contract buyers knew how easily they could lose their homes, they struggled to make their inflated monthly payments. 
Husbands and wives both worked double shifts. They neglected basic maintenance. They subdivided their apartments, crammed in extra tenants, and when possible charged their tenants hefty rents. White people observed that their new black neighbors overcrowded and neglected their properties. Overcrowded neighborhoods meant overcrowded schools. In Chicago, officials responded by double-shifting the students, half attending in the morning, half in the afternoon. Children were deprived of a full day of schooling and left to fend for themselves in the after-school hours. These conditions helped fuel the rise of gangs, which in turn terrorized shop owners and residents alike. So I'm just going to pause there for a second. So... So because the, the schools were so crowded that they had to split the school up and the kids weren't able to attend a full day of school, kids had idle time. Kids are going to be kids. So kids getting bored, terrorizing shop owners. That leads to the rise of gangs. The cause and effect of all of these things, just it's the way that this is laid out is just so logical. Okay, so back to the book. In the end, Whites fled these neighborhoods, not only because of the influx of black families, but also because they were upset about overcrowding, dis- decaying schools, and crime. But black contract buyers did not have the option to leave a declining neighborhood before their properties were paid for in full. If they did, they would lose everything they'd invested in that property to date. Whites could leave, blacks had to stay. The way that he laid that out was an aha moment for me, because it would shows very clearly the cause and effect of all of the different layers to this. It wasn't the issue of seeing a black person in a white neighborhood. It was the issue of a of a black person potentially living in a white neighborhood as equals, which I thought was interesting. Physically be in white space because there are plenty of black people in white neighborhoods in different service capacities. But it seems that the the problem was equality. Even within the covenants, it always says you know, it can't be occupied by anyone not of the Caucasian race unless they're in a servant role, subservient role, or other role that's basically serving the white race. Or housing discrimination, uh, racial justice, social justice is so layered. And so even just looking back at the generational wealth that was lost in the past two generations because of uh, racist FHA policies. The fact that my bandmates' grandparents would have been able to buy a house in Levittown with no down payment and at really great rates, and my grandparents would not have been able to do that. And where they ended up buying a house, they had to put down very hefty down payment, and they they didn't have favorable interest rates. Just the loss of wealth there, and like the compounding effect of that. It's something that's infuriating, and it's something that I recognize that most people and older generations likely know this, and it's, it's you know, water is wet, and that's just how it was. They knew the rules of it. But anyways, all of this just hits very different, and um, the, the specificity of the examples and the research in the background that went into this book is really phenomenal. All of this just left me wondering what our country would be like if the FHA hadn't been run by racist white people, creating laws and policies that then became the norm, and the number of citizens who felt like they just had to enforce those policies because that was the law. The generational wealth that was stolen and missed in the past two generations is substantial, and that's not even going all the way back to slavery. That's just two generations. So I don't have any answers. It's just 
discovery and thoughts from the weekend. So as a preservationist, it's a how do we tell that story as well? Of Levittown and other subdivisions, how does that get incorporated into the history, the narrative? So that is not something that gets forgotten or lost. The reality of why certain cities are in the current state that they're in can be traced directly back to the Federal Housing Administration's policies. And that's something that I think is so important that doesn't get lost because otherwise the assumption is that, oh, well, Black people or low-income people are just like that. They prefer to live there. If they move into different neighborhoods, then the values are going to go down. That's not the full story. Without being, without explicitly understanding or learning or talking about the policies that the FHA put in place, then it does a disservice to the current state of various inner cities in this country. I know there's a lot of really great work being done by a couple different firms, like Designing the We, where they're talking about designing the red line. I know Prologue DC has done a lot of great work around DC covenants and racial restrictions and talking more about that. It's these types of histories of the recent past, which are so important to continue to be brought to the forefront so we can actually address the causes of where we are. I'm only about halfway through the book, and I'm sure I'll, sure there will be additional things that come up. Housing is just such a huge aspect of the built environment, how we live, how we raise our families, how we grow up. Realizing the literally the tangible remnants that those decisions of the FHA have left on our cities, our built environment, our neighborhoods, which then, of course, affect our schools and taxes and all of the things. It's, it's all interconnected. And so it's been um, illuminating, infuriating, frustrating, enlightening to be doing these readings and just learning more about the policies that created these um, various neighborhoods that we studied in architecture school. It's ultimately making me think, so what, now what, is a question I'm going to keep trying to answer and trying to explore and contribute in any way I can. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. Quiet morning, quiet
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.